Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon. I'm Erin Dewar, and we are not in print. At 12 years old, Deborah Oswald announced to her parents she was going to be a playwright. She's been sharing stories ever since. Her broad body of work has been seen on screens large and small, watched in darkened theatres across the world, and read by too many people to count. Today we're talking about one of her plays, Stories in the Dark, produced for the first time by the Australian Theatre for Young People in 2007. Like so many of her tales, it was cherished immediately. And in the following year, it went on to win the Augie Award for Theatre for Young People and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Best Play. When Thomas, a 12-year-old boy, finds himself trapped in a war-torn city, separated from his family, he takes refuge in a derelict house with a 16-year-old Anna. Every night, to the sound of bombs falling on the streets outside, Anna tells Thomas folk stories to distract them both from the horrors lurking outside. And so begins a journey into the shifting, shimmering world of ogres, princes, singing bones, foolish lads and wolf mothers. Stories in the Dark explores the power of storytelling, mingling the magic and earthy wisdom of folk tales with the hard-edged story of violence, conflict and the struggle to survive. Deborah, thank you for joining us to talk about your play, Stories in the Dark. In the playwright's note that accompanies the script, you wrote that folktales from many different cultures are an extraordinarily rich form. They offer exotica and earthiness, slapstick comedy and heartbreaking moments, disturbing ideas and nourishing ideas, connecting us to the wisdom of previous generations, feeding our yearning to imagine a world where things are fair, lucky and potentially magic. Joseph Campbell, the master of mythology, said in his landmark PBS series, The Power of Myth, that people say what we're all seeking is a meaning, but I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive, and myths are clues to the spiritual potentialities of life. The scope of folktales may not be as grand as myths, and the scale is certainly not as epic, but do you think they offer us the same clues? Look, I think that's really right, and I think there's wisdom in folktales that comes from experiencing the story as Joseph Campbell, after whom I name my second child. He talks about story being, the myth being about the experience rather than just some piece of wisdom. Because if it was a piece of wisdom, you could possibly distill it into a paragraph of prose. But there's something that happens when you live through a story with characters that reaches parts of your soul that nothing else does. And folktales do that too, even if they're not as grand. I think folktales can actually provide a way for the good and the bad to be woven together so we can try to accept those aspects of existence that are just beyond comprehension. And like myths, they do this without ever presenting singular explanations or outcomes. And the difference for me is that folktales approach the incomprehensible and the unexplainable on a very human scale. Even when they are fantastical, they feel grounded somehow, whereas the highly symbolic world of the myth it seems to exist in a world above us, like the gods on Mount Olympus. And I just wonder if there was something about folktales that you thought fitted stories in the dark, particularly because of that earthiness and that groundedness. Yeah, I think I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think that's really right because I read so many just for my own interest and then for the play. And so many of them are about food. 
and about death and about money. They're about, you know, apparently quite prosaic things often, plus, you know, the odd elf. And um, <laughs> even if a folktale ends up in a place of, of happiness and justice, they've usually gone into darker waters first. They've mm. usually contemplated a world where things won't turn out and the ogre will win or the, the evil spell will, will not be broken. I think it gives us a chance to uh, sort of emotionally rehearse how we would feel mm. if something like that happened. And often the stories then do end up creating a harmony at the end. But usually after they've gone somewhere fairly dark first. And even with the harmony, there doesn't seem to be simple resolutions. There's a resolution, but you have a sense of continuation yes. within that. And there may be resolution for that honourable young man, but mm. the ogre is still out there mm. ready to trap the next young man who stumbles into his path. So that feels a bit like life. When writing about the magical, the fantastical, the imaginative, how much consideration do you give or allowance do you make for the company that's trying to realise this array of weird and wonderful? I was commissioned to write Stories in the Dark by Australian Theatre for Young People. So I knew right from the beginning that I was writing a play for a youth company. And what that means is they want a big cast, which is a great luxury for a playwright, especially in Australia. And I knew that the play would go on to have a life more as to be produced in schools because we don't really have a tradition here of the major companies doing plays for young people. There's mm. virtually none, yeah. unfortunately, mm. tragically. Um, so I knew that, that that would be its life. So it was, it was constructed in such a way that you could have a couple of key performers and then a chorus, and you, that chorus could be smaller or larger, dep- you know, depending on how many kids you wanted to give a go. Yeah. And I like that idea. I think that's a really lovely idea. And then when it came to how to stage it, my experience with a lot of my plays is that, I mean, in Gary's house I make – cast build a house on stage every night in Sweet Road. <laughs> we roll a car, flood a lake. You know, my, my policy is designers will work it out. Um, and usually stage managers may curse my name, but um, because they're the ones who have to, you know, dismantle the house every night yes. or sweep up all the water. But um, designers generally, my, in my experience, enjoy it, enjoy the challenge. And oddly enough, it was probably more difficult to do the realistic wartime stuff than the folktales. Because the folktales, mm. I think people accept the conventions that a dirty scarf makes you an ogre. Yep. Yep. But we all have images of war movies in our heads, so it's much harder to do to, to make people feel emotionally that they were in a city and under siege. And in the end, a lot of the solutions came from sound, that you're never going to make something look like Walter on Sarajevo. But if you've got a bit of smoke and a bit of rubble and really good sounds of gunshots and mortar... That's very powerful. Like emotionally, you're there then. Mm. You just need a gunshot in a, on a bit of grey concrete and you're there. And, and we use sound quite a bit too with some of the fantastical things. Like for example, the dragon poo, the toxic dragon poo, <laughs> was achieved by we – t- we we're going to try all kinds of things, having things drop from the ceiling because, you know, it, it could be a gag, so it could be – doesn't matter if it looks silly. But in the end, we did it just with a fantastic sound effect and the reaction of the cast. I mean, young people are wonderfully flexible. So when we, when we mm. did Lazy Gus, we were agonising about how we were going to do the horse and how we were going to have the... And we just got this very acrobatic girl to be the dead body and very sort of fit young people to be bits of horses. <laughs> and, it was, and it worked brilliantly. It was much funnier that way than if we tried to have, a, you know, a horse like the beautiful war horse puppets or something. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Well, I think people as an audience enjoy that kind of... Puzzle solving or something, isn't it? They'd... Yes, that's right. That's part of the, the, the pleasure of watching. Yeah. yeah. I, I wondered, because there is 
this great stage direction or description, I should say, of the dragon where Thomas describes this dragon as bigger than 12 elephants. It's covered in scales of ice as hard as iron with claws that could slice a person in half with one swipe. I mean, this is a fantastic mental image. It's like something out of Game of Thrones. It just struck me, which I love. I love too. too. (laughs) (laughs) See, if it was Game of Thrones, I could have the actual dragon. But no, they would build me the dragon. All I've got is the words of a 12-year-old boy. It's all I've got to play with. Well, I think this is the thing. um, The stage directions that you then um, give to the creators are that we hear the dragon's roaring and shrieking noises and maybe, maybe see its shadow. Did you feel like you needed to say it's okay, you don't have to put a dragon on stage? Maybe that, that, that direction about the dragon was also to say, I'd rather you just did a really good sound effect than a very bad, you know, mm. paper mache dragon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that the maybe that was me sort of just saying please, <laughs> hinting at that to future, to future directors. <laughs> uh, well, the other big one that I wanted to talk about was that you have actors playing performers in the telling of the stories, you're actively breaking a fourth wall, really, where you're speaking to the audience about their relationship in the performing of the actual play in the sense that there's actors, they come on stage and they act out words that other actors are telling them to yes. play. And, and they, and they wait for instructions and they get annoyed if they, if they don't know what they're meant to be doing next. Yes. yes. So, yeah. look, that, some of that's just fun, isn't it? That's just totally. saying we all know we're in a theatre, let's not pretend otherwise and... Um, and it's also, I think, about the nature of storytelling that a character can do several different, they've got several different choices about how they will behave and sometimes they think they can decide which way the story will go mm. and sometimes the story has its own imperative. So when we first meet Thomas, he has just spent his first night alone in a ditch and he meets Anna and he explains to her about his, his family and he says that soldiers bashed in our door in the middle of the night shouting. They made everyone get on trucks but we all ended up on different ones. When the truck stopped in another town, I snuck out, tried to find someone from my family, but it was too dark. And Anna says of her family, father pissed off years ago, mother in the markets the day those big shells hit, killed probably, 99% sure. Our apartment got robbed by soldiers. Now we're dealing with Thomas who's 12, he says he's almost 13, Anna's 16. How, How do these young people cope with such extreme circumstances having been ripped apart from their families, these units that are meant to make us Mm. feel whole? Well, I don't know Mm because luckily that's not my experience. Mm. Um, But it's happened to, you know, millions of children for hundreds of years and it happened to the children of Sarajevo, which is what Mm. the play is inspired by, I suppose. And maybe something you particularly think about when you write for young people because not all of us are lucky enough to land in a good family. And if a kid lands in a family, a bad family, or in the middle of a war, as these characters have, they're so powerless. Kids are so powerless. There's nothing much they can do about their circumstance. So I always try to make the focus of the story about the bits that are within the grasp of a child. So if you're 12, you can't make the war stop. You can't ensure the survival of your family. What you can maybe do is is seek out people who you can trust, who can help you. You behave honourably to them. You find your own courage. They're all things that are, um, and friendship is always a huge thing in my work, especially for young people, because that's a, that's something that is within the, the orbit of a child. 
But is there something unique about these two? I think the fact that he is so persistent is important because it would take a lot to sort of chip away at her guarded crust and he's a persistent little kid. Um, it was important that they not there'd be no sense of romance. So I had yes. to keep them different enough in age that that would never be an issue. And and maybe the idea that he's so persistent with her is like an annoying little brother and yeah. she's resistant to him. Because, I mean, if, she, if she'd fallen for him and looked after him too quickly, it would have been a bit, a bit schmaltzy and it would have been, we wouldn't have felt that their bond was hard-earned enough. So it takes him, he's just got to keep bashing away at it, doesn't he? I feel like it's also a great way of introducing humour for these two because, you know, there's all that banter about names that that she will call him. I love there's this section where she says to him, hey, cabbage head, and he says, don't call me that. And she says, I wish you were a cabbage. Then I could make a soup out of you, you know, and he says, oh, I wish I was a potato head. And they have this, this all of a sudden, all this, um, all this banter and all this kind of nitpicking that they have to begin with turns into this kind of beautiful little nugget thing. and yeah. that he then uses in his final story yes. yes they definitely learn from each other though they have these particularly Anna has lots of survival strategies to pass on that this floundering young boy is kind of trying to struggle through and she offers these up for him you know she's got all these ideas about how she's going to cross the border how to trade for food yes. stuff and I think what he offers her is the sort of buoyant see an optimism of someone younger and less damaged. And she also becomes a folktale herself and there's that uneasy resolution at the end which all of the stories that they've told to one another have had too. You don't know no. what happens to her and you never will, but he will remember their time together and their story is just as much a folktale as all of the stories that have yes. come with them. Yes. And the story at the end is just him enjoying what he liked about her. Mm. And you put it in a story and then at least it exists in that form, even if you'll never see her again. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I, get ter- <laughs> I get terribly involved with the characters and, and yes, I love them like, I, like they're my actual children or friends. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the stories within the play and how you chose to position them within the plot because the narrative, for me, it has no single origin or thread. Everything has been blown to pieces thrown up in the air and turned on its head. And so while Stories in the Dark has anchor points, they're not fixed, really. Rather, they're, they're linked together in a kind of an uneasy harmony that just keeps moving forward as the way the world turns. And if we look at Anna and Thomas's personal quests first up, they're, they're long and they're dangerous, and the two of them are trudging through ruined streets for days on end, searching for family members or planning escape, trying to maintain a flicker of hope and purpose in the midst of great danger. And then we have the nighttime stories, which even though they run through the whole piece and give them both comfort, they're very complex ethically and emotionally. They offer no simple resolutions. And here's where I see the link between day and night. The stories are are clearly threaded with messages for them both and messages that they need to hear at those particular points as well. And obviously, as the writer, you chose where the stories went and why. And I just wondered if you could expand on that for us. Yeah, so... The idea right from the beginning was that the stories would either hark back to what they'd experienced that day. So there's the moment where Thomas has a man, a shot in front of him. So the story that night is about um, how to process something terrible that's happened to you. So letting narrative give you a way to, to, to digest and absorb something that's happened. So I think it's the Lazy Gus story, which is a story about 
laughing at death and finding a ritual for dealing with survivor guilt almost. Yeah. And then sometimes the stories function to be an inspiration and give them another way of approaching things that they will then carry out the next day, like having the courage to escape or whatever. So there were so many stories to choose from. The difficulty um, was getting rid of some. And I've even cut some out of the original um, staged version. The printed version has fewer than were in the staged one because it was too long. So The Three Golden Hairs is a grim story. But with most of the others, I took standard folktale shapes like a woman trapped, um, bewitched and trapped in the body of an animal or true love breaking a spell or whatever and and put them together to construct my own customised stories that would do exactly what I needed them to do. So The Singing Bones, um, that story exists in African myth, Celtic, Native American, all these different cultures at a time when they could not possibly have had any cultural connection have come up with the same idea of an injustice that is righted by the bones of the dead singing the truth. And I feel incredibly emotional even talking about it. I think it's such a powerful and beautiful idea that if you are 12 and you see your family, you see people killed in front of you, the idea that you have this urge for vengeance and instead of vengeance, there's this idea that the bones of the dead will sing the truth and bear witness to what happened is a very powerful thing. Mm. And then the she-wolf and the ice dragon story was very much, that was one that I pretty much completely made up to be what Anna needed it to be. And the cooking pot story is maybe my favourite because <laughs> that's a story about just accepting the reality of death mm. and, and the way the two kids manipulate the end of the story to try and change it was something I had fun with because that's about our urge to make a story go the way we want it to go. Yeah. And then realising that no, a story can have its own wisdom and you've just got to let it sit Mm. and tell you what it's going to tell you. So, yeah, so each story had its purpose and the beauty of folktales is that they're endlessly adaptable to what you need them to be. If I can just bring it back to um, the idea that they all get something that they need out of these stories as well and there's this one quote that Thomas has where he says, sometimes it's like my grandparents talking to me even though they're dead. Yes. This idea that, you know, other people have lived and maybe know a few things. Mm. And I think sometimes if, if people if people who are very close to you in time are telling you things, especially if you're a teenager, you're resistant to that because you don't want to be told what to do. So the um, exotica of a folktale means that people can let it in more sometimes. That if you're a teenager, sometimes you are, you're resistant to that. But you might let in a superhero story or something and get the wisdom from that that you're not going to get from your parents telling you, you should try harder and have courage. Mm. You'd just tell them to get stuffed, wouldn't you? I suppose because yes. you've seen your your parents' flaws and you've seen it all kind of laid out on the table, whereas stories, there's something pure about them, even though they might take yes. you into places that are tarnished and crazy and yes. upsetting and all of those things. Because when I first got really interested in the folktales, I thought, I thought there was so much potency in them and I thought, how can I use these? And I kept trying to use them by doing modern contemporary um, versions of folktales. And to an extent, I do do that. And, I, and that's in a lot of my work. And I, I go to myth and folktale all the time when I'm working on a contemporary piece to pinch stuff. But having said that, I think there is great power in the distance of a folktale that means you can hear the message from it in a deeper way 
the minute you couch a story in contemporary terms and all other kinds of judgment and all other kinds of agendas come into it, and I think that steals some of the power of a folktale or a fairy tale. I particularly found a lot of that resonance in the ice dragon and the she-wolf, mm. particularly messages for Anna. Mm. There were links for me where on one level she was the she-wolf um, and she was cursed by this ice dragon and appearing to, well, to Thomas anyway, as as this threatening being to begin with. And then in fact she is this lovely young woman underneath as she steps yes. out of her skin. There's this other moment where she puts back on this skin, this warrior uniform even, as she journeys off into the woods to save her child. And there's this kind of flipping of the story because she is the child, but then she's yes. going out to rescue the child. And there's this beautiful symbology going on between Yes, the and then when she's and in the tower, she is the, the child in the tower and mm. as well. Yes. Yes, and it's interesting because Thomas tells that story for his own purpose. He starts telling the story because he's just, he, to him it's a story about heroism and so that's what he needs and then inadvertently it becomes this story about yearning for your mother and he he doesn't realize how he's sort of walked right into the middle of <laughs> he's sort of prodding at a bruise yeah but in a in a wonderful way too in a way that you know I mean we all enjoy being upset and moved by stories that so that's not a terrible thing that's not a bad thing and then then he realizes that He's got the maturity by then to realise what he's done and try to tell her the end of the story, which is a comforting end. But there are times when someone is so wounded that they don't want to hear the comfort because Mm. it's not how it's feeling for them right now. I'm going to take us on a a serious note. I I want to talk to you about loss and pain and survival, which are inescapable aspects of conflict. And generation after generation across the globe comes to realise that in the aftermath of great conflict, everyone has lost something, be it food, shelter, dignity, sanity, or those they loved. Fittingly, Stories in the Dark is is set against the backdrop of a war-torn country that could be many different times and places. And your influences were diverse. In your playwright's note, you mentioned that you drew on details from the siege at Sarajevo. You also say that you became interested in the struggle of the international legal system to find justice for victims of war and genocide. And The Singing Bones, one of the stories that Anna tells Thomas, contains an image that can be seen, as you said, in stories the world over, the bones of a murdered person crying out for truth and justice. But, of course, that particular image occurs outside the structure of a story as well. It lives and breathes on the nightly news. We've all seen aching souls huddled over lifeless bodies in the midst of a war zone, wondering why their loved ones were taken from them, and no answer to their cries will bring them back. So I want to ask you another question that you pose to your readers in your playwright's note, and it's something that I imagine that you had to grapple with when you were writing the piece. Do you think that folk stories are inadequate? absurd or even offensive in the face of ugly reality or can they help the human spirit to survive? I think they can help the human spirit to survive. I think sometimes they can be fatuous and offensive if the wrong story is placed alongside the wrong piece of reality. But stories have their place. I mean, in a way you could say the singing bones idea is played out in, is playing, being played out in The Hague right now with the International Court of Justice, you know, telling those stories, which doesn't bring anyone back as in the singing bone story the boy is still dead and and it depends on the story so the cooking pot is a story about that de- never denies the idea that the people are dead and not coming back mm. and 
that the fact that the children try to turn it into a story where magically the boy is brought back to life and they realise that that won't work. Cannot be. See, you see, you could do a version of that story where the boy magically comes back to life and I would argue that that story can be good too, that sometimes people need to feel that mm. and that that's not an inappropriate thing to feel. And other times though you need to have a story where it's about the fact that those people aren't coming back to life and so where do you turn for solace? And the answer is by looking and realising that everybody else in your village has lost someone and you can all bring food and eat together. Mm. So that's not denying loss, but it's finding a kind of narrative way to accommodate it. Yeah. So I, I don't think stories are magical. You know, I don't think they can kind of end conflict or anything. I just think they help us survive. And, and I suppose I do think there's moral education in them. Um, I'm an atheist and I believe that religion is just effectively a set of stories that people use to make sense of the world and look for moral guidance. And I think the world of story and myth is the same, mm. off, offers the same, the same values and, and it's limited too. Yep. So I think the more people engage with narrative, the more they grow their empathy muscles. And I suppose I do think that that has some power in the world, a very limited power. And I suppose one of the reasons I enjoy writing for young audiences is that I think stories have a more powerful and often lasting impact on you when you engage with them when you're young. I mean, I, I, I don't know that any novel or play or film has had the impact on me of the ones that, that, that I really encountered when I was a teenager. Mm. So maybe the sort of power fiend within me likes the idea that I'm going to get inside the head of, <laughs> of you know, 12, 13, 14-year-olds when you are ripe. That's the moment. Yeah. I just want to know whether or not you thought it was important to show some kind of joy was still possible. Yes, I do. And look, I think that's a that's an obsession in lots of my work. I think there's a there's a notion out there sometimes that the bleaker the story, the more courageous and rigorous it is. And I think that's a really facile way to look at things. I think it's very easy for drama to have a very narrow emotional palette. I think there's a great fear of um, emotion and there's such a fear of being sentimental. It's like the worst crime in the world is to be sentimental. And I think that the danger with that is it can end up making things this kind of desiccated thing where people make the bleak choice all the time or the ironic choice or the arch choice all the time because they're so afraid that if they write about joy that it will look soppy mm. and it will look like it's not intellectually rigorous. And joyful things can be just as intelligent and don't have to be naive if it's done in an authentic way. It's harder. Much harder. It's much harder to write about joy than it is to write about bleak. I mean, I often start people in quite a dark place or I take them down to a dark place, but then I always want to take them out again. Or, well, no, not take them out again. Take them as far out of it as I can realistically take them out of it. And sometimes that's not very far, like in the cooking pot. Sometimes people are just dead. But sometimes there's a way to feel better to have, find some nourishment, find some solace after something bad has happened and sometimes to find joy. So finally, Stories in the Dark combines all the power of storytelling, the, the magic and wisdom of folk tales, and all the horror and the violence of war and conflict with, I think, a heavy dose of compassion, friendship, humour and hope. But there are elements that obviously appeal to a young audience and at no point 
does this piece patronise them, as is so often the danger with theatre for young people? So what is it about this story that allows it to land with such precision on the hearts and minds of people of of all ages? I mean, I was very conscious of the fact that we would have certainly 10-year-olds and maybe 8- and 9-year-olds in the audience. So we were careful about the idea of we shoot someone on stage in front of people, which is maybe quite confronting when it's a live actor. And I was conscious at times because I didn't want to, I didn't want the play to tell any lies about what might go on in, in such a, such a war circumstance, but to try to tell things in a way that each audience member could receive the information at a level that was appropriate to them. Mm. So I don't want to do anything that's going to traumatize a kid that's too young for it, but I don't want to tell lies. So mm. sometimes it was about being judiciously vague. And maybe when those kids think back on it years later when they understand Will the they full though? scale. I'd like to think they'd be thinking back on this play <laughs> years later, but I don't know. Oh. I'd like to think that they will. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't they? Oh, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely remember a fair few plays that I went and saw when I was yeah, quite actually, young. Actually, me too. That's I true. I really do. That's true. I remember those more powerfully than anything I've seen in the last week. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's thank been an you. absolute pleasure. Yeah, that's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter. This episode was recorded in Sydney on the 23rd of February 2013. It was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of Rachel Corbett.